Hello and welcome to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdal, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at both LockdownWBB and, of course, over at High Post Hoops, where we're doing 24-7, 365 days a year, every single year of women's basketball, except this year. This year, it's going to be 366 because of the leap year. And so as part of that coverage, I am extremely excited to be talking to, and forgive me for saying so, women's basketball legend and Indiana Fever head coach, Marianne Stanley. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to chat. Thanks, Howard. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to our talk. So the place I want to start is a little bit of an origin story, which is that so I'm, I'm a kid from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, just outside of Philly. And okay. you, you have Philly in your bones. And you are one of many, not just coming from Philly, uh, but coming from Philly at that time, you know, with Muffet, with Gino, Teresa Grant, Renee Portland, I mean, I could go on and on. There seems to have been a very time and place that led to so many key contributors in women's basketball. Why do you think that is? What was it about that time and place that led to so many people? Well, that's a great question, Howard, and uh, I think you're right. Now, there are a lot of connections of people who have been... <clears throat> really invested in the game and come through the game around the same time. And uh, I guess I could point to a couple of things. First of all, there was really good girls high school basketball in Philadelphia mm -hmm. uh, at the time that, that I was growing up. And uh, you mentioned a couple of people, Muffet, McGraw, Teresa Grants, in Portland. You know, all of us came through at a time when basketball was kind of in its heyday for high school girls. And, and uh, of course, it was on the cusp of Title IX getting passed. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you had influences like my college coach, Kathy Russ, ran a, a huge basketball camp. Um, and then was the coach at Immaculata College, which, right. uh, you, know, you know, we kind of were one of the front runners of women's college basketball in that time. Um, but there were just a lot of influences in, you know, Philadelphia and the suburban surrounding area at that time. Uh, basketball was big, and there were a lot of opportunities that didn't exist maybe in a number of other places. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a perfect storm of, of things going on. Good coaching, opportunity, uh, lots of girls playing the game. And, uh, you know, Philadelphia has always had a love affair with basketball. You know, I'm a huge Sixers fan, and I go back to when I was a little girl, you know, Will Chamberlain mm -hmm. playing for the Sixers. I mean, that's how far back I go. So, you know, there's Basketball has a tradition and uh, in Philadelphia that, you know, kind of transcends gender. But for girls and women at that time, you know, it was just big. There's a huge CYO league, a yeah. huge Catholic. I played, I played at uh, Catholic high school, and, and that um, league was huge back in that time. So it was a good incubator for a lot of people who just love the game. It seems to me that a fully realized WNBA has to have a team in Philadelphia at some point. Do you share that view that it's just, as, when there's a good ownership group in place, when there's somebody willing to invest in it properly, that Philadelphia would just be an absolute haven for uh, for the WNBA? I really think it would be because I think, you know, historically, you know, there have been, <clears throat> you know, milestones in the Philadelphia area with regard to women's basketball and maybe just having a... Um, an ownership group that really is committed to the idea of it would be the difference maker. Um, yeah. You know, sports is a tough business, as you know, and women's basketball is trying to carve its niche. 
And, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. I think there is a place and there's a great opportunity in the Philadelphia area. You've got influences both, you know, of course you get all the, the NBA side, you know, the basketball community, but you've also got great college programs and people who have come from that area who yeah. have gone on to great things. Um, you know, Rutgers is doing really well. Um, you've got the traditional Big Five. You've got teams there doing well. Princeton has done well of late. Mm-hmm. You've got coaches that come out of Philly. You mentioned too, Geno Muffet. You know, there's lots of others. Don Staley, you know, went to Dobbins Tech in Philly. Mm-hmm. You know, so a place from which a lot of great basketball minds have come. And, and uh, you know, it does beg the question: Hey, how come there's not a league that, uh, or a team in the league there? But I, I think it's, it just takes the right opportunity and the right group to decide: Hey, we want to get in on this because we think it's great. We want to support it, and we're willing to invest. You know, not in, in a quick thing, but you know, it's not really going to invest in helping to grow this and make it viable. And I think this is a great time. This is the timing right now would be terrific. Yeah, it sure would. And you're right there. Princeton's obviously not just an area team, but one that just went in and uh, won in the palestra by uh, 20 points this weekend. So helps to have a Bella Allery on hand to be able to do that, of course, as tough as it is to play at the palestra. Uh, but I want to talk to you about your time as a player. And, you know, you mentioned Immaculata in passing, but you guys were a power, uh, for those listening who don't know, uh, an absolute power for uh, the, the decade in the 1970s. You were, as I understand it, the lead guard. Uh, I, I'm curious, just from a player perspective, what, if you had to put a player comp on yourself, somebody who's playing now, who would come closest, do you think, uh, to capturing the type of game you had? Wow. <laughs> you kind of caught me off guard on that one. <laughs> Uh, well, I, get, I, I think I think like a Sue Bird, but I'm not, I wasn't half the, the player of a Sue Bird, but that mentality of you know, running things, mm-hmm. you know, setting the table for people, getting the ball, where it should go, when it should go, that kind of stuff. Um, of course, I had great players around me, you know, Teresa Grant-Serene, Portland, mm-hmm. Mary Scharf. Had there been a three-point line, her scored another thousand points in her career. Uh, gosh. I don't know. I, I, as a point guard, I was always assist first, score second. And sometimes that wasn't maybe such a good thing, but, uh, you know, I, I had a, a real good career and, and feel happy about it. We went to four championship games. And I, play, I played in four championship games as a player, so I guess we did all right. I, but, uh, again, great team, great coach, and real good support. I mean, our Howard, at that time, you're talking 70s now, our games were we had a gym on campus that really didn't have much seating so we we had to go off campus for our games and, mm-hmm. and one of the places that we went regularly uh was to Villanova University you know they've since torn down their field house which is where we played yeah um but and replaced it with their new place but that's where we played our games because we just didn't have enough seating yeah. capacity and that used to hold about 3,500 people so we would sell out I have pictures in my office of games where we have a sellout and people like the, the fire marshal could have come in there and bust them because people are on the <laughs> sideline and baseline, you know, two and three deep and they're standing and they, you know, for for a women's basketball game in the 70s. I mean, it was really something. It, it again reiterates that sort of macro conversation 
with women's sports that it comes down to nothing more than opportunity, capacity, and access, both for the people playing and the fans as well. And it makes me wonder as well, given the player that you were, when you got out of school, you went right into coaching, obviously we're 20 years prior to the WNBA starting, there were things like the WPBL at that time, I know teammates of yours uh, from college ended up playing there. Was that a possibility in your mind? I mean, did you think in terms of being a professional player and just the converse of that, do you ever think about what it would have been like if timing had been different, if opportunity had come sooner and the WNBA had been around when you were looking to potentially pursue a professional career? Oh, I'm absolutely certain had there been a league that I would have played Mm -hmm. and not gone into coaching. So my entire life would have been completely different. Um, but, of Amazing. course, you know, that just wasn't the way it was. And, and uh, you know, I graduated in 1976. So, um, you know, not only a couple of years after Title IX was passed and certainly well before it was fully implemented on all campuses and the ways we see today. But, um, you know, there, there just weren't – I wasn't aware of the opportunities, for example, in Europe at right. that time, you know, without the Internet, without the, the – you know, the global reach of sports right now. Um, you just, I just wasn't aware of it. And so I, I felt like the, the avenue with which I could continue to be involved in sports was through coaching. And so immediately after graduating college, uh, I became an assistant at Immaculata for a year. <clears throat> and uh, interestingly enough, I'll share a funny story with you about that. Uh, my one year as an assistant at Immaculata, we went back to the Final Four, although not to the championship game, and we played against a team from LSU that at that time had uh, a couple of Australian players playing on them. Uh, a gal named Julie Gross, who was a terrific like stretch four. Mm-hmm. Of course, they weren't, weren't known as stretch fours back then. Right. And, and a woman named Marie Benny Jackson. Well, that name mm. should, last name should ring a bell because Indeed. that was yeah, that was uh, Lauren ja- or is Lauren Jackson's mother. Fascinating. So she came over and played. <laughs> yeah, it, she, Marie Benny Jackson was a heck of a player. Was she comparable to Lauren Jackson? What kind of game did she have? Marie uh, was was real physical. As you know, when you think about when I think about Australian basketball, even still, even today, it's a kind of a no nonsense, physical, you know, mix it up in the paint kind of game, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we actually took my college team to Australia for a month after my sophomore year, and I played against Lauren's mother. Hmm. Um, so we played against each other one, one, well, one, one winter for them, one summer for us. Of course, you know, the season's being backwards, but uh, she, was, she was terrific. Physical, Amazing. strong, good shooter, uh, more of a five than a four like Lauren was, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Lauren's come from from a basketball family, so and, kind of and an interesting way to those connections are kind of funny. Hundred percent, and and of course, as ever, the seeds planted are always something that you can see in retrospect when you think about the way uh, Australia has grown as a basketball power. So really interesting. No, I had no idea about that. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That, Australia has always been uh, very much in you know a front runner in terms of supporting women's sports. Mm-hmm. And it may have been off the radar to a lot of us here in the U.S., but, um, you know, there, there was a club system, 
you know, way back then that was really, really good and and um, uh, exceptional. I mean, real a lot of talent. You know, that was a great tour we took, and uh, you know, they just had great, great players. They they will not be an easy out this summer in the Olympics. That's for sure. No, but, oh no, not yeah. at all. So you've spent most of the subsequent couple of decades as an assistant in various college programs, you know, whether it was Penn, whether it was USC, and then comes the turn of the 21st century, and you are suddenly first an assistant and then um, head coach and WNBA Coach of the Year with the Mystics. But it was obviously a very different lead in 2001-2002 back then. And I'm wondering how often you were thinking, you know, I've talked to people like uh, Cheryl Reeve and Dawn Staley about this, about the stability of the lead at that time and thinking of it as a permanent place. It's now been your professional home for a couple of decades. Did it feel that way as an eventuality when you first joined the Mystics? Um, no, I think there was just a lot of, of excitement coming out of the, ni- the 96 Olympics when, you know, after that Olympics, the league was formed and, you know, certainly was a very different league at that time. I came into the league in 2000 after actually spending the majority of my career in the college game. You know, right. I was a head coach at a number of different schools. And then in 2000, I made the leap to the WNBA because, you know, I just had to know, was there something about the pro level that, you know, I just didn't know after having spent all this time in the college game. I was mm-hmm. really intrigued by it. Had the opportunity to go to L.A. Uh, and join Michael Cooper with the Sparks uh, as my first stint. And then I came to Washington. But the league at that time, yes, it, it was different. And, it, and it, I don't think anybody really considered that it wasn't going to be permanent. Do you know what I mean? Um, I do. Yes, the question yeah. that had to feel, uh, uh, you know, is this something that's just going to be here and gone, or or is it permanent? I, mm-hmm. I think all of us at that time were invested in just trying to make it a great league and fan-friendly and, you know, just high-quality basketball that, you know, people uh, would enjoy watching. You know, one of the intriguing things, and I think the valuable things, for me was to know that someone like a Michael Cooper and someone like a Bill Lambeer, you know, were really, you know, interested in coming into the league. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then, even from back then, if you talk to either Coop or Bill, they would tell you, you know, people would ask them silly questions of, well, how do you teach girls basketball versus <laughs> boys basketball? You know, these silly questions. And they're going to like, right. look, Basketball, basketball. I don't teach a female pick and roll. It's a pick, it's a daggone pick and roll. Right, you know? right. And they both had that. And and so, you know, for those people who couldn't just wrap their mind around women's professional sports, it was probably enlightening. Like, oh, okay. Well, I got to stop thinking about it in this outdated, outmoded way, and just say, yeah, well, yeah, it is basketball. And, so and if you like basketball, you're gonna like this because it's high quality, great athleticism. Uh, you know, yeah, we don't dunk, but hey, absent that, everything else, you know, is should be familiar to you, and at a very, very high level. And and being uh, and given the opportunity to ultimately run your own team when you were getting to Washington, are Coop and Bill the ones you were looking at as models for a specifically professional way of coaching a team, or was it more of a hybrid of what you'd learned, you know, over that period of time in the college game as well? 
Well, I always feel like I learn from people that 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 I work with, mm-hmm. and certainly learned a lot from Coop. And of course, being in the in the W as an assistant for um, a couple of years. You know, when I first came to Washington, Tom Marr, the uh, longtime Australian national team coach, was the head coach, so I joined him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I've, I've picked up things along the way. Uh, I'm, I'm a student of the game. I always add to it. But you know, I had had. You know, I st- I was a head coach when I was 23 years old. Yeah. So I didn't join the league until I was, you know, you know, 40 something. You know, so I had had, you know, well over 20 years of coaching before I ever, you know, joined the the pro ranks. So, yeah, I think I had a, a, a pretty well formed philosophy and just added to it along the way. Have all have always done that and we'll sure. continue to do that. Well, I just I mean specifically to coaching professional players. I just wonder if there's a different yeah. aspect to it. That comes in because, like you said, you, you you had several decades of experience, but you had it mostly at the college ranks. Right. Well, yeah. There. You know. Obviously. You know. You're dealing with grown women who have families and who, you know, have grown up in the game and and are pretty well traveled. Mm-hmm. And so the approach to coaching them is different. And I think I think to a great extent, it's a little more collaborative in the sense of, you know, getting their input. You know, I always want the players to feel like, you know, I'm a player's coach in the sense of I, I need to know what you're thinking. I want to know what you're thinking. I value your opinion. I value your input and your feedback. And we're in this together, so let's put our heads together and figure out what works. And I'm completely comfortable with that and uh, pretty much always have been. Um, so I, I think of it as a as a partnership, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, on, on this level. And not that it's not on the college level, but, you know, players being a lot younger, they need to learn things. And they certainly need to learn things on the pro level, too. But I think it's more of a partnership and, uh, you know, more collaborative. I, and that all makes sense. I, I'm curious also on the court, though, and to sort of shift ahead in timeline a little bit. You've spent much of the past decade. Uh, coaching in Washington, obviously, uh, with Mike. And there's a very different way that you guys with the Mystics have played the game on the court than has been typical in the league. You know, not just positionless basketball, but the sheer number of threes, for instance, that you guys took. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as the future of the game, which is what some people would argue between what Washington did in 2019 and uh, what Dan did in Seattle in 2018 in along the same ways, positionless, shooting more threes at the opportunity. Even Walt Hopkins talked about this last week uh, in his first press conference with the New York Liberty. Or do you think that was specific to personnel? Well, I, I, yes and yes. You know, I do, do, do think that <laughs> the three has changed the game. Yeah. Um, but it also, particularly in the case of Washington, was – personnel base. I mean, when you think about when Mike started and I was there from the beginning of with his coaching staff, you know, for seven years. So year one to year seven looked very different. Okay. Um, you know, you're, we kind of grew into the model of what you saw win a championship. And I think it was the last two years were really were coming to, you know, fruition, if you will, uh, as to how we wanted to play and what it was going to look like and, and the implications for the personnel and, and, and shots and, you know, all the analytic stuff you get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is 
different than your quote unquote traditional, you know, uh, low post, you know, five dominating the paint and then, you know, spread them out around it. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm at sorry, this, go ahead. At this stage, I, I think at this stage, you know, it, it's smart to utilize your personnel and take advantage of their strengths and play to those strengths. And there are teams in the league, you know, look at Phoenix, you know, they've got a tremendous post player in, in, in um, Brittany Griner, and they're going to play through her a lot. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Minnesota. We've got a really good young one who's developing in Tierra McCallum. So um, I think you'll see kind of a hybrid on our part mm-hmm. uh, in Indiana. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think a lot, of, a lot of the decisions that are made with respect to what's happening on the basketball court uh, are based on personnel. But I think the players each year are coming in more skillful and more geared towards becoming positionless. Yes, I think that is a train that's already left the station. And, you know, it's, it's like you better get on board or get left at the station. Right. <laughs> well, and, and, and you stole in part my next question, which is obviously that you have this clear, obviously dominant for much of the year, especially in the second half, traditional five in Tierra McCowan. And so to that end, you're talking about looking to play through her, and obviously Phoenix is able to do that. Minnesota does that extremely well with Sill as well. But I wonder whether that means in your mind you essentially have to surround her with shooters, and shooting becomes more of a premium because Tierra is not going to take her defender out to the top of the key, just when you're thinking about spacing and the way you want to run an offense in Indiana. Well, I'm not, you know, I, let me let me back up. I, I talked about playing through uh, Brittany Griner in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. You know, we are going to play through Tierra somewhat, uh, but we've got a good team with a good core group and she is a big piece of that mm-hmm. um, we've got some outstanding players otherwise you know so veterans like uh, Candace Dupree um, um, Erica Wheeler coming off one of the best years you know that we've seen a, a guard mm-hmm. have in the WNBA and you know the terrific year that she had with the um, all-star nod uh, you've got Kelsey Mitchell, who's a dynamic scoring guard. So, like I said, our schemes and our philosophy is going to be built around the talent that we have and the people that, that we have on our roster. And I would say it's going to be a blend and a balance of inside game, outside game, transition game, half-court game. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's, that's taking advantage of all of the, the, the talents and all of the skills that our players have and, and maximizing them. Um, it makes it's that, our and, job to figure that out and what that looks like, in a, you know, at a particular time and with whatever groups on the floor. But you know, you'll see different looks. And, and that and that Phoenix comparison is is useful there too, in the sense that the two best from beyond twenty five feet, specifically last year in the WNBA, were Kelsey Mitchell, and the year before it was Diana Taurasi. So there's uh, D- Diana definitely got her share of shots, and it's gonna be fascinating yeah. to see. It, you talked about the the core group and what you have under contract for 2020 already among that roster. You have 11 players already under contract for full protection. So there is this core group that 
uh, was playing uh, particularly well down the stretch near the end of last season. I, I had a chance to see that group in the final weekend of the year when they came to New York, and there's obviously mm-hmm. a, a lot of talent on that team. So when you think about uh, the off season and uh, you know what you're looking to do, obviously of the the lottery pick, but beyond that, is it trades more than free agency when it comes to uh, those types of player moves that are going to best uh, help the team? Well, you know what? We like, you know, our roster. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're going to look to improve our roster you know, where we can, but we like our roster. And I think it's helpful and beneficial to, you know, with a coaching change, you know, there's some moving pieces and, and you know, I look at our roster and I'm going, you know what, these guys here made a decision in that locker room late in the year to go win basketball games. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I've said this to a number of different groups. Over the last 13 games of the year, Indiana was 7-6. and six. Mm-hmm. So where you look at the entire record and say, oh, that's a losing record, you know, you're in the lottery, not a very good team. I look at how did they finish? And not just the last two or three or four games. We're talking the last 13. So essentially after the All-Star break, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much. Yeah, fully a third of the Seven season. More than. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a winning record, which would have put them into the playoffs. Right. That tells me a heck of a lot about the composition of the people in our locker room as it stands right now. So, as I said to Tamika, you know, I don't think we need to do anything rash or radical or, you know, to upset the apple cart. We've got some people who have what it takes because they decided, hey, we don't want to lose anymore. We're going to get about the business of winning. And that's exactly what they did. Um, so I liked the competitiveness of that. I liked the fact that, um, you know, obviously some of the lessons that were hard-earned and hard-learned earlier in the year um, then helped them to, to finish out the season in a positive way. But I, I think we have um, a good group of people. And that's not to say we won't make any changes, and a lot depends on the CBA and where all that goes, Howard. Sure. But um, we've got more than a few good players, and we're happy with them, and they're working hard, they're playing overseas. And, uh, you know, we're going to put this thing together and get out there and compete with, with anybody that comes you know, onto the court with us. It's, it's about getting out there and winning those 40 minutes every time. And so you talked about the way there was buy-in inside the locker room and down the stretch from this group. And so the big piece that you have here is this lottery pick as well. So when you are thinking about that lottery right. pick, the amount that character comes into play, is that first and foremost, is that a prerequisite when you were evaluating which big additional piece out of college you're looking to add to this group? Well, you know, I think anytime you, you pick a player, you want somebody with, with high character, and uh, they've also got to have talent, and, and it has to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the sitting there at the third spot, you know, it gives you a lot of latitude because we don't know where this – this draft is going to go. There mm-hmm. are a number of um, red shirt juniors that could come out in this draft. They could no radically question. change this draft. N- yeah, no doubt about it. So <clears throat> who's going to be sitting there at three really remains to be seen. There's a, you know, it could drive you crazy because you've got <laughs> a whole bunch of options, but that, that's a good problem to have. You know, we like that. Um, 
but but no question, we want somebody that you know is a good person, good player, someone who's going to be willing to grow with our team because it is a relatively young team. Mm-hmm. Um, a good a, a few good veteran leaders mixed in, and uh, you know I'm confident we're going to get somebody good. So are, are, I'm not you... losing sleep over who exactly it's going to be, but. Not losing, you know, it'll play itself out. Not losing sleep, but how how many games are you watching a week? I would imagine that your your schedule is pretty oh, filled scouting right now. Well, yeah, I can't keep. Well, yesterday was a good example. There was great basketball on TV yesterday. I could, couldn't keep up with them all. Mm-hmm. I spent most of the night going back and watching, you know, games that I had recorded and games that you know I wasn't able to watch live. But uh, you know, it's pretty exciting. You know, all the upsets. I mean, look what's been happening. Let's talk college basketball for a minute, Howard. Sure. <laughs> I yeah. know you got to be excited about it. You know, this is right down your alley. Oh, it's amazing. I, I, your, your DVR sounds like my DVR, and just seeing that it is this wide open. I, I, I think Oregon is probably a notch above, but there's a whole host of teams who are very clearly capable of going out there and winning six games in a row in March and April and capturing the national title, which... Well, will itself, I would think, have an impact even on the way everybody's thinking uh, about the draft. Does a player coming through in that key moment in an NCAA tournament have more of an impact in your mind than, let's say, that player having a big moment in January? Um, Not necessarily, but I like the fact that as the stakes get higher, you get to see how someone handles the pressure and you get to see, you know, if they can string together you know, two and three and four games as opposed to the one isolated game. But you also know very well that sometimes you've got players who, you know, are the standout on a team that's either very young or, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Um, And so, you know, um, as opposed to a a player who's on a team that's loaded and has got people at every position, you know, you know, you don't overlook people. Mm-hmm. because of that type of circumstance any more than you would overlook a mid-major. Right. I mean, I thought at Washington that was one of our four days we found the mid-major players that really could perform at this level. So, you know, circumstances certainly are a piece of it, but I don't think they dictate anything. You yeah. know. Mid-major, overseas too. I, I, I recall an Emma Meesman. I don't know what ever happened to her, but I think she uh, <laughs> might, have, might have turned out to be a pretty pretty good diamond in the rough for you guys through the draft. So I, I got to say, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a big Emma fan, obviously, but I'm going to tell you what, I don't know that there's been a player that can come to mind of late that's as good a person as they are a player as Emma. What yeah. a terrific young lady. And uh, I'll talk to her because, I mean, there's one. She's one. She was drafted at 19. She was a second-round pick. Mm-hmm. And she thought she was going to get cut. So she came to us in Washington with one, you know, one piece of luggage ready to go home in three days after she got cut. That's what she had in her mind. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> it took her a long time to appreciate how good she Quite was and could be. Yeah, one of the real good feel-good stories uh, out of this league, uh, in, certainly in my memory. So it, 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 I'm with you. I, it's great to see. So I want to take you full circle before I let you go. And you're going to be coaching this summer at Barclays Center. You're going to be at a, a major venue in New York City. Now, the last couple of years, we didn't know whether that was going to be an eventuality or a possibility 
for the WNBA uh, moving forward after the Liberty had been temporarily relocated from Madison Square Garden to uh, the Westchester County Center. And I guess I wonder whether you will be thinking about the fact that here we are 40 odd years on later from what a lot of people think of as the birthplace of the major women's basketball moment in New York City, which is when your Immaculata team played Queens College at Madison Square Garden. Do you plan to think of it in that way? And, and do you ever take a step back and kind of evaluate how much you've been a part of this growth and development of women's basketball in a macro way? Well, thanks for, you know, recapping all that, Howard. (laughs) No, I hadn't really thought of it quite in those terms, but, you know, I I just feel really, truly fortunate that I came out uh, when I did and had the opportunities, you know, like you said, first women's game ever played in Madison Square Garden. So, obviously, I can never go into the garden without thinking about that. Um, Mm -hmm. First women's televised game at the old Cole Fieldhouse at the University of Maryland. Can't go over there without thinking about that. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I've just been, you know, really blessed to be a part of the growth of the game. You know, I've spent my entire life investing in young women and their growth in the game, and it's, you know, my passion. I thoroughly enjoy it. I've had wonderful, wonderful people to work with and players who I still connect with. And, you know, this is just another step in that path. I'm excited about going to Barclays. I think it's a it's a great opportunity for certainly the New York franchise and, and also for the league. League-wide, it will be really good. So, you know, there's there's a lot of people who have invested a lot of them, themselves and their time and their energy and their money to see this thing grow and become the great game that it is. So I'm fortunate to be a part of it, and I'm excited about that. And, uh, you know, when I go to New York, I think about the garden. I think about the good old days. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. Now, but, I'd like to do a shout-out if, if you'd let please. me. Please. Um, uh, yeah, I want to congratulate uh, my colleague, Tamika Catchings, for her nomination for Naismith Hall of Fame and also for the WPCA Hall of Fame. Yes. I mean, truly, truly one. And are you talking about a legend of the game, an icon of the game? Tamika Catchings is the, the epitome of that. So hats off to Tamika and well-deserved. As, as a figure and as a person as well. So, yes, I, 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 would, I would like to second your congratulations. And my, my last note would be that you'll enjoy, as much as Madison Square Garden is the world's most famous arena, the road locker room is even more spacious and enjoyable at Barclays Center. So it's in, oh, in that way, even a step forward as well. Well, Marianne Stanley, <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk both past, present, and future uh, of women's basketball with me. Uh, I really appreciate your time and looking forward to chatting with you many times down the road as well. Absolutely, Howard. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely.